Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. As always, I am excited to be able to bring to you some just incredible conversation today. Um, we're going to have someone that, as I said to her, I can't believe it's taken us 180 episodes to get her on. But, uh, you know, for those of you who may not know, this may be your first time you've ever listened. I'm Phil Dark, and with me is my brother in arms, Brandon Stiver. Brandon, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. It's uh, it's good to be here. Uh, you know, fall is upon us. You know, I'm not in Africa anymore, so I, I've moved to a very high latitude. It gets very dark very quick up here in Washington <laughs> State. So we're trying to adjust, uh, but uh, for the most part, doing well, man. Uh, how about you? How are things? It's kind of the same deal. I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday here in Northern California. It's not quite as dark quite as early as it was where you are, but I'm having a hard time figuring out how to get on my walks yeah. because I really miss getting outside and just walking and, you know, being able to do that till eight, nine o'clock. And by the time I get done with work, it's like, there's no time. And you can only do the exercise bike so much, you know, but anyway, yeah. hopefully figure that out and get back out in nature and be able to do that. And hope as we're in the middle, when this releases, we'll be in the middle of Thanksgiving week. And so hopefully folks should be able to have some really good time with your family um, spend time. If you're here in the United States celebrating Thanksgiving, if you're outside the United States, well, you know, if you're not celebrating Thanksgiving, figure out a way to be grateful and, uh, get together with family and friends and just, just connect. We should be doing that all the time. It shouldn't just be one day that we're talking about what we're grateful for. So, um, on that note, man, what are, what are you grateful for right now? Ooh, I am grateful that my kids are in school. Mm. Uh, you know, there's, there's still COVID protocols and we're actually going to talk yeah. about COVID today, but, uh, I'm grateful that they're in school. We had a couple bugs going around. Mm. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful, uh, for my wife. Uh, she's amazing. Uh, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for my church. I got a great church up here in, in Tacoma, Washington. And, uh, which has been so, you know, after living in Tanzania for as long as we did and not really having a kind of go-to church home, I'm really grateful for, for our church. So, so anchor church up here in Tacoma. So, I got a lot to be grateful for, man. And, and, and I'm glad you bring that up because I, I need some uh, reminders of that. How about you, bro? What are, what are some, what are a couple of things you're grateful for? Yeah, I'm grateful for, uh, yeah, similar to you. I'm grateful for my brothers that I have. I have a great, incredible men's group. Um, as always my wife and I'm just, I mean, I'm so, so blessed with her. There's, there's just, there's just amazing. She's an amazing woman. For those of you out who know her, you agree with me. If you don't know her, you want to trust me. Um, my kids just, you know, amidst all the, even before we recorded, there's, there's lots of issues going on, but I'm grateful that the issues aren't major and the, uh, and we have kids who love the Lord and love each other. Um, and very excited for, for grateful. They're all coming home for, uh, for Thanksgiving. You know, as, as you know, I lost my mom this, this fall and grateful my dad's able to come up and, and uh, grateful we know where my mom is too. That's that's another thing to be grateful for. So amidst a lot of yuck going on, there's a lot of real good. Um, I'm also grateful for some, for some conversations I've been able to have uh, the last few weeks that have just been really rich, life giving. God's given me opportunities to share the gospel with some different people, and that's that's just I mean, talk about life giving, man. I, that's literally life giving, and um, something that. I've just been very grateful, very, very grateful for. So um, grateful I get to watch my kids play soccer, that they're actually out able to play again. Um, and that's that's just a lot of fun to be able to coach this this winter in a normal season with my high school team. Very grateful for that too. So we could go on and on, but we're not gonna. I'm also grateful for this guest we have today. To how'd you like that segue, brother? Why don't you, I, I figured uh, tell it was coming. Who we got, who we got. Yeah, well, today we have uh, Dr. Susan Hillis. Uh, Dr. Hillis is uh, a longtime uh, person of influence within this uh, space. Um, one of the main things that we're going to be talking with her today is about this uh, orphanhood report that came out, um, uh, COVID-19, uh, the, the hidden pandemic. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty jarring, uh, for people in our space, um, to recognize, um, the long reaching effects of, 
of COVID-19 um, on orphaned and vulnerable children and the dramatic increases um, that, that have actually taken place. So um, we're going to be getting into that with her. Um, she's an adoptive mother. She is an advisor for World Without Orphans and our friends over there. So uh, she's got uh, just uh, years and years of both personal and professional experience and we just couldn't be more excited to, to have uh, Dr. Susan Hillis joining us today. Dr. Hillis, welcome to the Think Orphan Podcast. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks, Bill. Uh, you know, as, as I've said, we, we told you before we recorded, I, I, I almost feel like I need to apologize for not getting you on earlier. This is just like crazy. I mean, we've talked so many times over the years and just never been able to share the wisdom that you've been able to share with me with all the audience. So I apologize to the audience for sure um, for, for not getting you on earlier, but welcome, welcome. Um, you know, as, as there are, there, there very well may be some people out there who don't know you. I mean, I, I'm sure that most know you and know of you, but um, you've been able to speak at CAFO. You've been out there doing an incredible work over the years. Um, but why don't you just briefly introduce yourself, you know, as a parent and a professional, what, what led you to be where you are today, uh, working to care for orphan and vulnerable children? Sure. So my husband and I have been happily married for many years. And when we first got married, of course, you know, we were having that conversation, how many kids do you want? And I always <laughs> said, I think I could take 12 disciples, <laughs> but we have the 11 children and the 11 grandchildren. And um, I decided I don't really want 12 because whoever wanted a Judas anyway. Exactly. So um, I, uh, I um, would say God clearly led us to adopt our eight adopted children. And it was through a family tragedy. We had gone on a family bike ride the day before our son's 10th birthday and he pulled out in front of a car and mm. was run over in front of us. And so the next day, our daughter, who was one year older than Johnny, um, Christy said to me, oh, mommy, our family will never be right with only two kids. Do you think we might be able to adopt some children who need a family? And at that point, I was really concerned about her. Uh, I said to her, honey, you just cannot replace your brother. And she goes, oh, mommy, I've already thought about it. I am not trying to replace Johnny. And she's like 11 telling me this <laughs> with confidence. And then um, she said, I really do think we can love children who need a family. Um, can you pray about it? And, you know, what am I supposed to say? No, I don't do that. So, um we did, my husband and I started praying and over about three to four months, it seemed clear to us that the Lord was inviting us to believe that he was, he had, he was equipping us as parents who had lost a child to love well children who had lost their parents. Mm. And so, um, we adopted our first two kids, um, at ages seven and eight, I and Alex, and then, um, <laughs> After about two years, we adopted our next three kids. After Anya began to pray, we could go back and find her best friend, but her best friend came with two brothers. And then about a year after that, we discovered that our first two adopted kids had three other siblings still in Russia, and the Lord led us to go back and adopt them. So that's how we ended up with so many children. And uh, our children are all grown now, and our grandchildren are ages one to 11. So that's a little bit about our family. And you wanted to be, know about my uh, professional background. I'm a senior scientist at the CDC, and I'm a global expert on uh, HIV AIDS related vulnerabilities in children and COVID orphanhood and violence against children. And um, so have um, led many research studies globally with um, the CDC in collaboration with World Health Organization, Oxford, Harvard, and other universities. Um, so I love science and I am thankful I get to serve God um, through using it. And then my um, other affiliation is I'm on the 
a senior leadership team of World Without Orphans, and I serve as our chief strategy officer. So I, I would say that I have two professional affiliations, both the CDC one, which is official, and the uh, really more of the volunteer service one with w World Without Orphans that's also official, and it, it is something that I do as part of my Christian service. So you don't have a whole lot going on, basically, is what you're telling us. Kind of boring uh, yeah. around the Hillis house. Well, um, <laughs> I hope I have going on what is in the appointments of heaven for right. me. I've been thinking a lot the past year about Psalm 119 verses 89, 90, and 91. And they kind of give this new idea to appointments. So um, I'm not sure I'm... Uh, necessarily busier than most people i mm -hmm. i've i've learned to be discerning about what i say yes to so yep. no i love that i love that talk a lot about that with uh, a lot of men in my life who come to me and say how do you do so much and i'm like well there's a lot on the plate but you know it's very intentional and very much you know like you said discerning being able to listen to god in the midst of a lot of noise out there to say okay here's a, here's a lot of things but to know the depth as well, to be able to go into to different things. Some people can handle a lot more than others as far as, you know, multiple balls in the air and uh, other people really struggle with that. So I'm encouraged uh, with all that you're doing. I know that some of the work that, that you've been, been working on have been able to benefit from in tremendous ways. Um, I also remember the first time I, I, I didn't actually meet you, but I heard about you is when my wife was in a community Bible study in there out there in Atlanta, Georgia, and said, there's this lady that has like a ton of kids from Russia um it's amazing it's the story's incredible you know and so she tells me that and i didn't think much of it at the time and then a few years later i put two and two together and i'm going i think that's susan that must be there can't be too many of them but it was pretty funny so um but i don't think we ever met when we were in georgia and then later on we we get to know each other and it's been it's been great um so with adoption speaking of how has adoption and how has the as you said god really formed you and shaped you to be able to take care of the kids who lost their parents because you you lost a son tragically. Um, how has it shaped your family and also shaped your views on what's needed for the orphan and vulnerable as you are working with World Without Orphans and the CDC? Uh, so I think as God invited us into his heart for children and for adoption, I began to recognize that um, just the privilege it is to see the Lord unfold life when he sets the lonely and safe and loving families and to bless us tremendously and grow us tremendously as we serve adopted kids. So I would say that um, probably the, one of the most important things that God did was he taught me to love well. Uh, because, you know, often, especially if you, when you adopt older kids, often they're hurt and, you know, hurt people, hurt people. We certainly had our, uh, mm. our opportunities to, uh, I think, feel hurt ourselves, my husband and me. And what's amazing is I, I felt like the Lord showed me that, um, he wanted to change me to fill me more with his love for them rather than use me and my love to change them. Mm. So this theme of um, change to love, not love to change is a very important one. I think often when people ask the kind of question you just did, they're kind of fishing around for like, what are the needs in them you met or what are the parts that are broken that you fixed? And I think it's a rather arrogant question and not a very healthy way to look at it. And I have, um, you know, learned that it's a lot of what needed fixing or healing or strengthening was the Lord uh, teaching me how to love unconditionally. So I've had some good chances to do that. I'll get, tell you one little story. So um, one of our daughters, he was the most hurt. I uh, grew up and at about 19 fell in love with this young man that we were concerned about. 
and she ended up moving in with him. Uh, he uh, was ended up uh, using and selling drugs, and she ended up uh, trafficked in Atlanta mm. on the streets of Atlanta. And you know, here I am working at CDC in some of these HIV/AIDS arenas, and you know, I'm in the middle of having to face that. And it was about the time that movie Taken came out and Mm -hmm. I was just terrified. So I was praying one day, oh Lord, would you just show me how to help her? And usually when I ask the Lord something like that, I'm just quiet to hear is like, is (laughs) is he going to say something? And so I sensed the Holy Spirit putting these four words in my mind. That's not your job. Mm. And I thought, okay, well, that, that's fine. What is my job? Two words, love her. So for about a year, uh, what we, my husband and I felt like that meant was just like go down and find her and her friends and take them out to a nice restaurant for lunch, spend time with them and love them. So fast forward, miraculously, she comes off the street and um, she's doing great and has a wonderful husband, et cetera, and who's a believer. And she has, it's just been a lot of healing. But um, I told her, at one point, what in the world were you thinking? Like, you scared me to death when you were on the street in Atlanta. It's such a dangerous place. And she goes, mommy, you don't understand. When you have a mama and daddy who your first mom and daddy tells you they love you, and then the daddy gets drunk and kicks you in the face with the army boots, you don't believe them because mm. they, they really didn't love you. Then you go to the orphanage and they say, we care about you. We're going to take care of you. And they don't. And you're abused by one of the older boys in the orphanage and nothing ever happens to him or to you. I mean, no one ever helps you and he never has any consequences. Then I come and you and daddy adopted me. I just did not really believe that you loved me. And so then I asked her, when did you, do you believe I love you now? Of course I do. When did you start believing that? When you loved me enough to come downtown when I was, um, trafficked into prostitution and take me and my friends out to lunch. I knew only a mommy who loves you does that. So, so why am I telling you all this? Because I think so often in the adoption community, there's a lot of um, attention given to things like reactive attachment disorder. And I think sometimes the reactive attachment disorder is in the parents and as much as in the children, because we can get so hurt when, um, you know, by the, by the wounds of children that God is inviting us to love. So it is so freeing, I have found, when the real aim just becomes, um, Lord, change me so I can love them well, not like help me love them so I can change them to be mm-hmm. like I wish they were. So I'd say that that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I think has been really important uh, for me about uh, learning to love and adopting. But I also think if we are going to like take it a step farther, I, I think that is foundational for any believer invited into what is on the Lord's heart. So I would say the what like as the Lord is working on us and it's a lifelong process, there are some clear needs that I am confident orphans have. And I think it came to us, several of us on the World Without Orphans team were praying about four years ago, Lord, why don't we have a World Without Orphans? And we sense the Lord showing us there's four reasons. Um, the church does not know how to combine and integrate Brasgill collaboration, living refreshed in people's own personal walks with the Lord and keeping first things first, um, intervention, which is adopting or caring for or fostering children who need an alternative family. And the fourth is prevention, coming alongside of those young children or young people who are abused, um, neglected, potentially in uh, extreme poverty, educationally um, marginalized, coming alongside of them as the Lord's instruments of love and care and hope. So uh, as you know, the road in the World Without Orphans Roadmap, we, co- we really combine all those and we're all about um, helping strengthen those through calling and equipping national leaders to collaborate to solve their own orphaned and vulnerable children's crisis. So you basically start with me, Lord, can you teach me to love? 
go on to conceptually what is essential in your strategic framework to make sure that you're building if you're going to really effectively address the needs of orphaned and vulnerable children and those caring for them. And then once we know what has to be there, then you have to think of how to accomplish it and how to accomplish it, I don't think is primarily through a lot of um, US-funded international organizations, even though they certainly have their place. But I think it's more from calling and equipping the national leaders themselves mm -hmm. to bring the solutions that they have to their own orphaned and vulnerable children's crisis. So let me just tell you an example of what I think that looks like. Um, be, through my CDC work, I had to, uh, one of the things I've had, I've done is I've uh, been deployed to work on strengthening faith-based collaborations to address HIV-related problems in a number of African countries. And one of those is abuse of children and abuse of orphans and vulnerable children. So I was visiting a um, county in Kenya, Narok County, where there are very, it's the highest rates of adolescent pregnancy in the whole country, 40% of girls, and a lot of them are abuse related. And I learned that what happens when a young girl comes to press charges against a perpetrator is there's no other place for her to wait for the magistrate. So she literally has to wait in a jail cell after she has like a 14 year old has just been raped, for example. And so I was meeting with the magistrate and the, I, you know, I was asking the magistrate, so like, what do you think the main problems are and how could the justice system be strengthened? And she said, well, the main problem is we have no place to put young people when they come and press charges and we need a shelter to send these mostly young girls to because we can't send them back to the home where the perpetrator is abusing them. And I, I said to her, you do not need a shelter. You need Kenyan believers to be called and equipped to provide emergency foster care for those young people that are coming and pressing charges in your office and having to wait in the jail cell. And so I just was heartbroken because I thought, Lord, why are you not providing this? So I go back to my hotel room and I'm pouring over the internet studying to look for the Kenyan adoption law and see if their adoption law has any um, uh, stipulations for emergency foster care, and it does. But of course, it's not implemented yet. So I was weeping and crying and just asking the Lord, will you just please do this? It's so heartbreaking to think of those young people. And whenever I would meet people getting ready to go on safaris in Kenya at the Maasai, because that is exactly where it was happening, I would tell them, please pray about this situation. And I would explain it to them. Lo and behold, this morning, I'm on a World Without Orphans call with our leadership from Kenya. They had just been on TV this morning because the government is contacting them to collaborate. And one of the main things they're doing is building emergency foster care. They're in the county right next to Narok County that I had prayed for, and they're going to Narok County next. Well, why am I telling you this story? Because so much of what is foundational to meeting the needs, which is what really was the first question that you asked me about, mm -hmm. is um, as we see things that break our hearts, praying and telling other people and getting them to pray. And I guess the thing also that really struck me again this morning is so often when I don't see the answer to prayer, I think God's not answering, mm -hmm. but often the answer has already been provided. I just mm -hmm. don't know about it. Mm -hmm. So that it, the whole thing was just so exciting to me. Yeah, no, I love that. I absolutely love that. And that's something I talk about a lot with a lot of people is just the idea that, as you talked about there, there, there are the answers are there. God is working. God is moving. Even when we can't see it, God is the one who changes. God is the one who does the work. He lets us be a part of it. And so when we really have that idea, as you said, that there are people all around the world who are doing incredible things that oftentimes if we just get out of the way, let them do it and help them, encourage them, love them. It's amazing to see what happens, you know, just as brothers and sisters in Christ. So no, I, I absolutely love everything you said in that answer. Thanks, Bill. And, uh, you know, Dr. Hillis, uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the onset was uh, around 
COVID-19. Um, now, we're aware of this um, report that just recently came out um, that was basically showing data up through the end of May, which you were a part of, as well as a number of your colleagues, including those from the CDC, World Health Organization, World Without Orphans, and a, and a number of others. Um, you know, First off, I'll just kind of start off. Uh, this isn't your first publication. Uh, your uh, research has led to over 100 publications. Um, can you just maybe briefly share with us what role does research play? Uh, why is it needed uh, for those of us that are working in the OVC space? So um, certainly we know that early exposure to vulnerability and neglect and abuse and trauma can affect a child's developing brain, particularly and specifically the brain architecture, the neuronal synapses, and at the cellular level, the release of C-reactive protein, which is an immunologic um, substance that actually helps your entire immune system be stronger. So when there are physiologic and physical and immunologic consequences of this chronic and toxic stress that kids often go through. If we're going to love them well, we need to be aware of how that impacts their behavior and choices and emotions and cognitive development. So one of the things that uh, research does is it teaches us how to love well. And so I'm going to I'm gonna um, change the topic to an analogy. Imagine you were going to, you wanted to fly a plane. Well, none of us would ever think of going and sitting in the cockpit and just <laughs> turning it on and having a go at it because the consequences could be disastrous. Sure. And so often um, I think loving and caring for anyone who has experienced trauma or hurt well is as complex as flying a jet plane. And so certainly we can learn a lot yeah. from reading, studying, and also from walking alongside of those who, who have learned how to do that well. So I think that's why we need science. There are studies that demonstrate what is the best available evidence and what are the best practices for preventing the abuse, working upstream instead of, as my daughter said, why do people wait till after someone's trafficked to help them? Why don't they help them beforehand? Uh, it's It always bothers me about the Christian community getting so excited about um, something that affects us. It's horrible. It affects a small number of people, the trafficking one compared to the abuse one. Mm -hmm. I, I think we need to care about all of it and to care about all of it while we can really um, integrate excellence into our spirituality and call by learning yeah. about science. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a big believer in those preventative things as well. And, and even when you, you know, you mentioned abuse and you mentioned trafficking, there's a lot of money that's raised a lot that goes into, uh, those intervention type of, you know, nonprofit work, you know, focus on trafficking. But if you can actually get those preventative things, especially when you realize that um, abuse is such an antecedent factor that leads to those even more egregious or more vulnerable situations, whether that be trafficking or some other you know, vulnerability, if you can actually focus on the prevention and have something effective as far as a preventative measure there, it actually is one of those things that, um, that you can really leverage uh, impact by, by focusing on that. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. It's something that, that I'm really passionate about. Um, one of the, you know, getting into this most recent uh, report that you were a part of, um, the, your most recent research, which was in uh, children, the hidden pandemic, uh, for our listeners, we will have the report um, that's on the CDC's website. It will be released in the show notes. But um, this research went up through uh, up through the end of May, and it estimates that nearly two million children have lost a mother, a father, or a, or a grandparent caregiver. Um, and I was uh, recently in a conversation with one of your with one of our colleagues, Philip Goldman from Maestral International. Um, if you look at the um, if you look at the trajectory and the graph that's even there, what you notice is that from March uh, 1st to December 30th, 
of 2020, um, the curve is kind of going, um, it's going up, but it's a little more gradual. In your guys' second set from January 1st to May 31st, so just a five-month period, it, it, it begins to increase more, uh, more steeply. And according to uh, Philip Goldman, that's continued even since this report was released. Um, the numbers that he said is that it's upwards of now 5.2 million, um, if, if I remember him correctly, as well as another 150 million um, uh, people that are plunged into even further poverty. So uh, those are some big numbers, um, pretty daunting. Um, as a lead researcher within this project, can you just help us understand the implications of these, of these daunting figures? When we talk about you know, another 5 million kids that are orphaned, um, you know, what, what are the implications of that? Yeah, th thanks so much, Brandon. So uh, yes, Philip and I work very closely together. I'm so glad you are uh, interviewing him. He's a colleague and friend. And yes, uh, we began to um, be very concerned about the trajectory that we were seeing. The slide that you're describing and that's in the report, we call it the double the damage and half the time slide because you basically double the number of children impacted in the first five months of 2021 compared to the um, first 10 months of the pandemic in 2020. And uh, especially as the lead author of both the report, the Lancet paper, the US paper, and now this um, additional paper that we're working on that has the 5.2 million number in it, uh, we have been very disturbed about the speed with which the number of children facing orphanhood has increased. And we reported that on, there's an October 6th CDC webinar that has um, basically seven, uh, seven minute TED talks by our top authors, for, you know, uh, Philip was one of them, one of my CDC colleagues. I moderated it and planned it. And then we had the um, seven different TED Talks done. But I would really encourage your listeners, if you're interested in this, to uh, consider tuning into that because you can certainly get a lot more information there. But we, uh, we recalculated where we would be by the end of October for that webinar. And that's when our first um, estimate came out. And we have now confirmed it, it is 5.2 million as of the end of October. But at the end of October, there were 5 million deaths. So what you suddenly have is a one-to-one -one correlation between COVID orphanhood, children who have had, you know, lost a mother or father or grandparent caregiver and the number of deaths. And what is really disturbing is that we have billions of dollars of investments in preventing the COVID death side of the ratio. And we do not yet have any national investments in any country that are prioritized and dedicated to addressing the needs of children within a national COVID response strategy framework. So uh, again, you know, you want you want the policymakers tuning into it to invest. You want believers to have a sense of what needs to be done and how to do it. And I think what we have got to begin to do more and more of is pray God awakens the church and releases the church to walk into what he is inviting us into. So let me say a little bit about that. I think one of the biggest needs is to actually identify the children. We said in uh, you know, the title of the report that um, we wrote is The Hidden Pandemic. And this morning I was just thinking, you know, inside of the pandemic is a hidden pandemic, but inside of the global emergency is a hidden emergency. And both of those things are true. Um, imagine if at the same time, your house is on fire and you're in an earthquake, you would never be able to get anywhere by just paying attention to the earthquake. But I think that I feel like that's what's happening. It's like adults are dying and children are orphaned and in the whole world, what people are paying attention to is only one of the two, but they're equally traumatic and consequential long term. And so I think the more that uh, believers can be engaged in speaking, being advocates for change, but also who is it that goes and visits someone who's sick or, or goes to a funeral memorial service? 
uh, you know, pastors and faith leaders and Christians, we uh, all the time, it's part of what we do to show compassion and care. And how many of us have the habit of asking when we do that, are there children in your family and is anybody helping them or taking care of them? How are they doing? So we certainly can do it in the schools. We can, you know, around the world, uh, teachers are wonderful people, uh, teachers and counselors, administrators who often know if a child is struggling and often in the health sector. And often there are Christian groups who have, um, you know, medical clinics or mission hospitals that they're supporting around the world. So those different kinds of gatekeepers, we really can try to begin by identifying the children and um, seeing if there are ways we can help them. Yeah. And, and obviously all of those um, looking to mobilize the local faith communities and, and what's the government's piece, all of that is obviously implying that there's a significant vulnerability. And to a certain extent, we've seen this before because uh, so much of um, even the U.S.'s uh, intervention in places like Sub-Saharan Africa was in response to the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic, um, which, you know, hasn't necessarily gone away, um, although there has been some uh, great advances in far as um, care for people with HIV AIDS. But when these, you know, massive uh, uh, whether it's a pandemic or when these things happen, it leads to vulnerability uh, being heightened. So can you even just help us understand like what, what is happening at the family level? What's happening at the community level, um, especially for, or even the national level for countries, especially in the global South, um, where a lot of our uh, listeners are, are either tuning in from or focusing their, their work. Um, I mean, what, what, what does it look like right now, you know, at those different levels, the family level, the community level, and even the national level, what, what is COVID-19 doing? What's their life look like? Yeah, great question. I can answer it. So um, there are really serious consequences for children that affect them short-term and long-term and all are intertwined with the impacts of COVID on their family because one of their caregivers is dead. So the increased risks short-term for children are increased abuse and neglect and particularly sexual abuse and exploitation, increased risk of mental health and suicide problems, and increased poverty. All of those have faces both at the family and at the community levels. Those are short-term. Longer-term loss of parents is actually an adverse childhood experience as one of those. It increases the long-term risks of uh, even 40 years down the road death from chronic diseases such as heart disease or diabetes and um, increased risk of infectious diseases, including things like HIV AIDS and increased risk of substance abuse and addiction. So all of those things have consequences at family, community and national levels. Um, At the community level, the threat to education that COVID has brought about and then the link to um, as education is threatened and young people have nothing to do. You know, with the WWO, we are hearing of um, epidemics of teen pregnancy all over the world because as kids are out of school, they're either raped or selling sex or um, end up just, I think, often sometimes even out of boredom and have nothing else to do involved in sexual activity. So the consequences are great at a national level we don't pay a lot enough attention to the national security implications of having a large population of teenagers who are empty, angry, hurt, and disenfranchised. I mean, you want to destabilize a country, just like do that and pay no attention to them. And so there's just every opportunity, but that's, that's what happens if they get no help. You know, we have learned from two decades of responses in the HIV AIDS epidemic, which I've been quite involved with professionally in my job, that we know what works and when it's supported and implemented, children get the help they need. And then we help, you know, all of those um, bleak consequences that I mentioned can fully be prevented. So, you know, it's so interesting that we have had the, moral fortitude to invest in global HIV AIDS at um, significant levels. And I just hope that we will also as a nation 
have the moral fortitude to invest in and incorporate supporting children who are impacted because of the death of their parents or caregivers or because of their increased risk of abuse, even if their caregivers are still alive or of poverty or of food insecurity. I will say also that we do know what works well. It's what we call the three Ps, prevent death, prepare families and protect children. And that's, you know, we, we brought a lot about that in the report. We know we can prevent deaths by um, rapidly accelerating vaccine equity and trying to help um, address vaccine hesitancy. Uh, uh, that's the first P, preventing death. The second one, prepare families who it kinship or foster or adoptive families to be ready to take children when they are needed, when uh, you know, alternative family care is needing, needed, and then promote evidence-based approaches to responding to the increased risk of violence and abuse and other social vulnerabilities, especially by the three accelerators that we know work. And we talk about this a lot in, in the roadmap and in WWO and at CDC and in the report at World Health Organization, all the partners, and that is um, strengthening families from parenting support, strengthening economic stability through cash transfers or microfinance approaches. And the third one is promoting um, well-being for children by um, making sure we're addressing like the three things I just mentioned, uh, strengthening economic stability, educational stability, and parenting stability. I would say one thing that, you know, I think your listenership is probably primarily Christian. And there's one thing that I'm praying about, and it's giving me hope. And um, I'm I just hope I, I hope anyone who's hearing, listening, uh, determines to avoid offense and know that uh, we have a way forward in unity together. And so, you know, at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, what Christians were known for around the world was judging people who contracted HIV AIDS as, you know, this is sinful and God is judging people. And Within about five years, the narrative of what Christians were known for began to change because instead of being so bent out of shape about um, the cause, people seem drawn to the compassion that we are invited to bring by caring for orphans and vulnerable children and caring for people who are dying of AIDS and being like family to them. And so there's been so much division that has been um, fueled by the church itself related to COVID. Um, I think the opportunity is being presented to us again to focus on what is on the heart of God. Um, setting the lonely in safe and loving families and caring for widows and orphans in their distress and keeping ourselves unstained from the arguments of the world. I think I, I'm praying that just like there was a flipping and turning of that tide with AIDS and we became more known as Christians for who we're for than for our arguing and judgmentalness. I am in governmental and UN circles all the time. And I'm telling you what Christians are known for right now in those circles is closed-minded arguing. And all I'm thinking of is, oh Lord, you know, how long before you make us famous for caring for the orphans and vulnerable and people who need us in each of our communities. So it's one of the things that I just want to invite all the listeners to join in praying about, and please join in praying. God helps us see the orphaned and vulnerable child before us. Um, I want—I know you did have a question also about um, books or people I've listened to. What was that question that you usually ask people? Yeah. So. Yes, we normally do. You you are so astute. You must be a doctor or something. Uh, you are right on top of it. Yes, we we uh, and as we start to close our time, uh, we do ask, what have you watched, uh, read, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children uh, with excellence? Yeah. That so um, 
I said, I would say what I've read that's been most impactful is the Bible and who I've listened to, who has most been most impactful. It, it may sound trite, but it is not <laughs> trite is the Holy Spirit's voice to me in that example, even though like I was sharing with you, you know, um, uh, love her. Uh, and there are many of those kind of examples. And if you ever want to have a different podcast, <laughs> you just want to ask me like, what are some of the things the Lord has taught you? I can, I'd love to do that. Um, so I'd say that. And then I would say that there is one movie that I watched year ago, years ago that really impacted me. And then there is an author that is also a very old author and a classic author who's really impacted me. So the author is Amy Carmichael, and she thought she was going to be going to India as a famous missionary, calling the masses through evangelism and open stadiums. And she ended up washing dirty diapers and caring for children who needed families because they had been um, sold as temple prostitutes in the Hindu temple system. So I'm um, just learning, reading so much about how the Lord allowed her to love children and, and they were transformed from receiving love really impacted me. And she's just such a godly woman. So if any of you have never read Amy Carmichael, I would strongly encourage you to do so. I also love the book Always Enough by Heidi Baker and it really um, influenced my praying that God would be causing Christians all over the world to care about orphans and vulnerable children because as leaders and influencers do, others copy them. And then the, the movie that has been most impactful is a very old movie about China called Anne of the Sixth Happiness. And the Lord allowed this one woman through her tenacious courage to be God's interested in, in uh, instrument in saving the lives of a hundred children. And um, I watched that movie probably 30 years ago and it shows at the end her walking over this mountaintop after uh, a three day trek by herself with these hundred children across enemy lines. And she's walking into a little village into safety with all the kids, you know, singing this so many played one, you know, and uh, as she's walking down that mountain, I remember looking at it and thinking, oh Lord, if you could let me affect the lives of a hundred children, I would think my life was worth living. And um, he did that early on, we adopted, because we over about 10 years prayed a hundred kids into families. But now, honestly, I feel like the Lord is letting me influence um, at least millions, if not more, through um, the leadership and writing and service that I'm doing with colleagues at um, World Health Organization and World Bank and Oxford Imperial, WWO, et cetera. And um, also just even as together, more and more people are praying. So I would leave that as my answer. Love it. Absolutely love that answer. Um, so we always finish it off with the question, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? So um, I can't think of, I tried to think of a person. I cannot <laughs> think of any one person because all people I think of um, reach a low bar compared to what the Holy Spirit has taught me as I face different um, challenges. So uh, given that the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity, I would have to say the Holy Spirit is my answer. I can't argue with that. Cannot argue with that. So, well, thanks again, Susan, for, for being a part of this uh, show, for, again, finally getting you on. And I thank you for saying yes and just uh, sharing the wisdom that God has given you. And the Holy Spirit clearly is speaking through you and working through you. So thank you for uh, who you are and what you're doing and how you've inspired so many. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you all today. And thank you, everyone listening. God bless you. thanks again to Susan. Um, man, I'm always just, I feel, uh, stupid is not the right word. 
Um, but I, I feel like I need to read more and I need to check out a lot more studies and go and just learn more science every time I talk to Susan um, uh, about about these things, man. I, she's just got so much uh, experience, uh, wisdom in a lot of these things just from from years of living it and diving headfirst into these really tough, tough subjects. And, you know, that's something that, man, I, uh, I'm encouraged. Um, it's, it's daunting though, a lot of times to, to hear some of these things and, and to, to really go, this is what we're called into. I mean, if, if we, if we're doing what we're saying we're doing here, then we're going to see this stuff. I remember one of the things that Andy Crouch in his book, strong and weak talks about is the fact that in order to really flourish, at our fullest, we need to enter into the deepest suffering. And I feel like that's a lot of what we're talking about here and, and with the conversations with Susan and what we do in the, in, in the work that we're doing. So what'd you think? Yeah, I really appreciated, uh, the, uh, the time with Susan, um, just a wealth of knowledge. Um, I mean, even just when you kind of look at the breadth of all the research that she's been able to do, um, I mean, we could, we could, uh, we could go pretty deep down that, uh, down that mine of, uh, of, uh, knowledge, you know, that she has. Um, but yeah, there, there was a number of things. I, I love the emphasis on the local church, uh, that she brought up. Um, that was a core methodology when, when I was, uh, when we were running kingdom families there in Tanzania, it was all about the church. Um, what can the church do? How can the church stand up? How can the church be gatekeepers? Um, so absolutely love that. You know, one of the things, you know, when I asked her about the implications, um, you know, what does this look like at a family level? What does this look like at a community level? And she started to bring in things that our minds may not just jump to, right? Um, of course, you think, okay, well, that's going to lead to more poverty. But then she talks about it's going to lead to more trafficking or it's going to lead mm -hmm. to more like all these other things that uh, we don't necessarily uh, think of, you know, when we think about a kid, you know, losing, you know, their primary caregiver or a parent, um, you know, it, it is just so, um, it's, it's so humbling to try and work in this space, but it also is kind of compelling to be like, man, we have to engage more people with this, with this uh, message, because um, when a kid loses their parent, um, whether it be to COVID-19 or HIV AIDS or some tragedy, um, it really does have far reaching implications. And I appreciate that she was um, bold enough and articulate and clear and concise that look, this, this has really far ranging, um, far ranging implications, including at the national level, when she talked about, and we're seeing it, right? I mean, we've talked with people today or this season in Myanmar. We have an upcoming episode with a, a colleague from Ethiopia. Uh, we had Kara Wilson Garcia on talking about El Salvador. We actually see these areas that are destabilizing at the national level. And when you think about the far-reaching effects of COVID-19, not only at the family level, where now these kids are at risk of all these other things, but at the national level, I mean, the church has to mobilize. The church has to be known for, uh, for, for being ones that step up for the good of the community. So uh, I was just inspired by Susan. Uh, I mean, what, what, what stood out to you, Phil? Well, I mean, just what we've talked about a lot, uh, it's, it's nothing earth shattering, um, but just to be confirmed from a woman who has adopted a bunch of kids from Russia is obviously involved on the world stage at, at deep, deep levels. And what she says is what we know, because we've worked in these different parts of the world, that there are extremely brilliant, competent, um, experienced people in everywhere around the world that we are sending all kinds of workers to that we need to let them do their, their work, right? Like we want to empower and encourage and equip. And that, that's a lot of what I'm doing now with the collaboration and talking with these sports movement folks and saying, Hey, how can we equip you on the ground in these different countries to, to be able to know how to love the orphan and the vulnerable? Rather than just having them go and do stuff and then have to undo things later, how do we infuse it into the work that's already going on so that we can do that prevention, so that we can empower and encourage families and, and do that here in our backyard too. Like, and I'm not, I'm not saying like, hey, 
stop going anywhere and stop doing anything. No, but how do we walk alongside what's already going on and stuff we talk about all the time? It's what you guys at One Million Home are doing, right? I mean, that's what it's about. It's what World Without Orphans is working to do. So I just love hearing it from a top level, high level CDC, you know, um, you know, sure. uh, a scientist, a orphans, researcher, scientist, exactly. Like this mm-hmm. isn't just, and, and someone, it's not like she hasn't gone out and adopted people. I mean, she's gone and adopted kids from Russia. So it's not like there isn't time and place for everything, right? There's a, there, there is a time for everything, but I think that we don't give people on the ground doing work enough credit, quite frankly. And again, going back to, to, we don't want to, uh, undo things we don't want to go in and actually create more harm than good as we hear about it when helping hurts and everything else the class that i teach i talk to people about it all the time um to go in and think that we're doing great things but in fact we're actually creating these unintended consequences uh as i talk about everything has its shadow so if we're not aware of the shadow side if we're not aware of these unintended consequences that very likely will happen. So they almost become intended consequences when we keep doing them over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. If you know, they, that, that idea of, you know, what is the definition of, of insanity is right to do the same thing over and over again, expect different results. Yeah. And I think, I feel like we're doing that more and more. So to see this and to hear it from her, I just get excited to, to know that some great work is going on and that we get to be a part of it. Yeah. And I, I think there is also, especially with some of those things that she was highlighting later on in the uh, towards the end of the interview in in a lot of ways this is a clarion call for the church right um because you know even as she's saying look we're not always known for the right things you know when it talks about um talks about the talk talking about just interacting with other people in the world right we should be the ones like she said that are known for caring for orphaned and vulnerable children that should be what we're known for i was Mm -hmm. on a call um i might have been like a year ago with uh, various pastors we were just kind of talking with them and one of the people that was on the call was actually bob goff and he had this amazing um he had this amazing analogy we were all on the zoom call um as has become so ubiquitous now uh and he fixed his gaze off screen. And he said, you know, if I just maintain this pose, and of course he's Bob Goff. So everything he, the way he speaks is just, sure, <laughs> is so engaging and, and, and compelling. But he says, if I was just looking off screen, everybody here would be thinking, what is he looking at? He's mm. so fixated on something. Yeah. And, and we would just be like, Bob, like what, what has your, you know, what has your attention? What are you looking at? Mm-hmm. And as we were it, within that conversation talking about uh, orphans, vulnerable children, separated kids, kids that need to uh, be in a family. Um, and of course, Bob Goff has a heart for that, as did the other uh, pastors that were on that call. But he, but, but the thing that was just kind of like, man, when you are giving your attention to something, uh, it actually, other people are going to take notice that you're taking notice essentially. Right. When, so, so for us, um, when we hear Dr. Hillis, you know, talking about, uh, this humongous need 5.2 million kids, right. A one-to-one ratio for every caregiver that's lost. There's an orphan. I mean, it's, it's remarkable how daunting this can be. Does it have our attention? And, you know, within this podcast, we are often talking with, you know, various people that are taking action, which is awesome. Um, Right now, we're going to have hundreds of people listening to this podcast. And I would just say, what's your response, right? What is it that's that that has your focus? And I would just encourage, you know, we don't want this to just be a podcast where we just talk with really awesome people and have some fun conversations or some interesting conversations. What are you looking at? What, what are you focused on as the listener? Talk with your pastor. You know, one of the things is that there's um, 141,000 children that have lost a primary caregiver due to COVID-19 in the United States. That's, that's one of the statistics from this report. So, um, so I would just really encourage our listeners, let's do something about this. Let's, you know, she, there was a call for unity that, that Dr. Hillis gave us. Let's unify and let's unify around something that we can definitely agree on is that kids that have lost uh, parents, whether it be to COVID or something else, um, they deserve our attention. Um, so uh, I don't know. 
I think you preached last time. I think that might be my sermon, Phil. Hey. But uh, but I was I was I was compelled love by it. Dr. Hillis's uh, real call to us. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it and totally agree. Um, and I also know, you know, you you have a a, a a different type of recommendation for us today. So so why don't you just uh, let us know what your recommendation is for yeah. all of us? Well, I it, it, I'm not trying to be on, too on the nose. I know uh, Dr. Hillis gave us a few good uh, recommendations that we'll have in the show notes, but this would be my recommendation. Uh, this report that we discussed today, it's 55 pages. Um, but some of those are graphs, some of those are pictures. Hey, uh, pictures. So it's not, it's not just kind of a, it's, yeah, it's not just a hard read. Um, but man, it gets into um it gets into this. And and as Dr. Hillis alluded to, there's gonna be a follow-up uh, piece to this report um that we should be on the lookout for. So yeah, my recommendation is let's one, let's do something about you know what has been presented to us in this call. Um, COVID-19 is still going on, it's still having an effect on every family throughout the entire world. And it still remains an opportunity for the church to do something. So I recommend that we all do something with this. And then I recommend that we get into this report that Dr. Hillis wrote um, with a number of really respected um, colleagues within the global child welfare space and and the research community. So uh, that's my recommendation. Let's do something about it. Let's read more about it. Let's learn more. Well, I love it. And I just want to encourage you folks out there to check that out. Definitely read it. Definitely understand what it's saying. Um, Listen back to this episode with Susan, even after you read it to be able to might, you know, sometimes we, we watch a movie and, and it, and it doesn't really stick. And then we, we hear something about it or we read something about it. I've talked about like documentaries, then we go back and watch it again, or listen to it again, or read a book again. And after we've actually understood what we're uh, what we're looking at, it it'll it'll really help, I think, uh, you to you to grasp these very important things at a deeper level. So, I want to encourage you with that, and and as always, I want to encourage you to uh, rate and review the show if you haven't done so already. That always helps. Uh, as as we've talked about over and over, share it with friends. If it's helping you, uh, word of mouth is the best way hands down to get this, get this thing out there. So if if it's helping you share it with people who, you know, will help as well. Um, And, you know, most importantly, as, as Brandon alluded to take what you're learning from the show and, and use it. We hope and pray that you're using it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks and have a great Thanksgiving. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.